welcome to Antidote Stories in Medicine. This is a special coronavirus episode. I am going to edit this as quickly as possible and get it out. So if you hear some mistakes or the audio is uh, not great, then that's why, because uh, I hate editing as everybody knows. <laughs> and I really want to get this information out quickly because this corona information coronavirus information, there we go, first mistake, is changing so fast that what I say in this minute could be changed uh, by the time we're even done recording. So it is Friday, March 13th, 2020 at 11.25 a.m. All of the information I'm presenting you is accurate as of this time frame for what's been available to me. So just keep that in mind. Um, And to talk about this with me is great friend of the podcast, Tina from Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Hi, Tina. Hey, good to be here. Glad to be able to talk about this, although I feel like there's so much information out there that I don't really know a lot, but I'm I'm excited because I know how good you are with research and how thorough you are <laughs> with understanding things. So I'm excited to, get to talk to you about it. Yes. <laughs> I Let me just tell you, I have been driving my boyfriend in Sane. Like the last few nights, I have like been up till three o'clock in the morning reading like journal articles and studies and everything else because I'm just fast. I'm fascinated by this. And that's why we got into medicine, right? Is to like understand diseases and how they work. And I've been like going back to like molecular chemistry and uh, microbio and looking at like receptor sites and all this crazy stuff and rambling about it to the boyfriend. And he's like, I don't know what any of those words mean. So I'm really excited to talk about it because there's some really cool information. I'm going to say cool as in like interesting scientifically. Obviously, people dying is not cool, and that's the entire reason we're in this job. But there's some really interesting stuff. And what's kind of going out in the media is totally different than what we're seeing. Um, So we're going to talk about it. I will put this disclaimer out there. I am not a virologist. I am not an epidemiologist. I am not an infectious disease physician. The information I'm providing you, though, is evidence-based. It is all from primary sources. They're from journal articles that I've done myself uh, or from the CDC or the WHO. I have looked at multiple journal articles to confirm certain things that I'm going to talk about. Um, But of course, some of the things I may recommend or some of the things I may talk about, I'm not necessarily recommending you do. I'm just saying that this is the research that's out there and it's not FDA approved, but this is what's being going on in the rest of the world or what was happening for the first, for SARS, which is a sister virus, uh, sister strain to the COVID-19. So don't go, wow, I heard all this stuff on the Antidote Stories in Medicine podcast. I'm going to start treating patients like this. Please don't, please don't sue me and please don't do that. Um, But Go and go and take a look at these articles themselves because I'm going to list some things um, in the show notes and, and there's some really great information out there. So that is my like big disclaimer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, first of all, I, I guess I want to ask Tina, you're working inpatient in a hospital. How are you feeling about this? How is your hospital feeling about this? Well, it's... It's interesting because there hasn't been a lot of talk about it when up until just the past couple of days, because the area that I live in, we did not have a case of it until yesterday. So yesterday was our first confirmed case in Knox County. There has been a few cases. Uh, we live in Tennessee, but it's East Tennessee. Tennessee is a long state. So, you know, oh, you can yeah, be in yeah. Tennessee and be way off, way away, way far away. Um, so we do, we do have a confirmed case here. And so our, our hospital had been talking about some things, but not, uh, you know, it, it got serious yesterday. And, and pretty mm-hmm. much they said, no more visitors, no more. Um, you know, it's going to be absolutely necessi- necessary family only for, for our patients. And it, we know that it is better for patient outcomes to have family there. We know that. And we always want to have that. And we, we encourage people to be there normally. Right. During this time, it's, we can't do it. So that's definitely one thing that they're doing is they're, they're definitely restricting visitors. And so the reported cases, that's a interesting thing, right? Because the testing is such yeah. a big problem. And right before you and I started recording this, I got an email from LabCorp and um, Quest. And I was talking with my my boss. I do home uh, 
home visits, house calls as a provider. And there now is a commercial test that's available that you can do through LabCorp and Quest. It takes three to four days to get it out there nice. to get results. You know, it's an NAAT uh, swab, so a viral um, swab, and it has to be frozen and sent to the lab, and you can't get it collected at LabCorp request. And it's nasopharyngeal or oral pharyngeal, so nose or mouth. And I'm not uh, previously the Department of Health wanted you to do nasal pharyngeal, oral pharyngeal, a combination one plus a serum tube. That was our guidance last week when I when I wrote the guidelines for our COVID response because I was the the point person for that. And so now it's maybe it's one, just one swab. I don't know. I So I have to look into this afterwards. Um, but now we have commercial testing available. We're finally allowed to do it. It's not all done through the state labs. So, you know, you may have had one reported case, but I suspect we probably have, I mean, I know we have a lot more cases that are out there Yeah, that we just haven't known about because we haven't been testing. Right. And also right before we started to record this, I was reading this Medscape article about how GI symptoms may be the preceding symptom and that there's viral shedding in stool. Now, not necessarily infectious viral shedding like you would see with like C. diff um, or, oh my God, why am I blanking on this? Um, Cholera. But, you know, you can get severe nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea a few days before you develop a dry cough and fever. So we may have been like, oh yeah, you've got a GI bug and it's actually been a coronavirus exposure and we haven't been testing that because why would a gastroenterologist be like, let me swab your nose? <laughs> right. It wouldn't do that. So that came out, uh, I think on the 11th, That's yep, March 11th, early GI symptoms in COVID-19 may indicate fecal transmission uh, by Rick Lewis, Ricky Lewis, PhD on Medscape. You guys can go look that up too. So it is March 13th. We'll do a little brief coronavirus history of this outbreak, and then we'll kind of talk about some more stuff. Okay. Sounds good. So this all started in December with this new weird uh, pneumonia that was presenting in Wuhan, China, right? And then, you know, some doctors were like, hey, this is a really severe disease. We don't really know what this is. It's maybe around some of these fish markets, some meat markets, just some outdoor markets that are there. started to spread throughout Wuhan. Um, and then. I'm not going to go too much in. We kind of know the story, right? And then it started to get really out of control. Um, China was like, no, 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 there's no problem. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, yeah, there's a really big problem. They locked everybody down in Wuhan. Then they locked everybody down in China right around the Lunar New Year. Um, And that actually significantly reduced the spread of the disease. And the U.S. did stop incoming travel from Asia, which did buy us a little bit of time. But unfortunately, we didn't start testing people or develop a test efficacious. We didn't get a good test at that time. So we didn't kind of prepare. Now, everyone's really freaking out because we don't want to overburden our hospitals with these severe cases. Now, you are going to hear the naysayers kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum about this saying, oh, it's just kind of like, a, it's like a bad flu, which first of all, it's not. <laughs> but it can be really mild for some people. The majority of people are going to have a really mild case and they're going to be fine. And this is just like I say with influenza. And I don't mean to say that this is like influenza, but I would say the same thing. It's not about you. (laughs) (laughs) Like just because you're going to be okay, it doesn't mean that you can't spread it to other people who won't be okay. Right. So stay the fuck home. (laughs) (laughs) Tina is going to be like, oh, damn it. I do have to edit that out. Stay home because (laughs) if you're getting it, you're spreading it. So don't do that. Now, does this mean you can absolutely never leave your house and you shouldn't, uh, you know, go to the grocery store and you should use all of the toilet paper ever? No. You know, it means social distancing. So be at least six feet apart from people. It means don't go to the grocery store every other day because you can never remember what to buy. It means meal plan, you know, order things on Amazon Prime so it's delivered to your house. You know, one person goes to the grocery store on their way home from work and they hand sanitize before they go into the grocery store. You know, you put your stuff on the grocery belt, you know, the you're not touching the self-checkout stuff, the person's bagging your groceries and then you're hand sanitizing before you get into your car, you're in your car, you know, you wipe your car down when you get home, that that kind of stuff. You do it once a week. That's fine. 
that's social distancing as long as no one has been sick around you. You know, now if you're immunocompromised, if you are exposed, then yes, stay home, really limit your exposure. I do think closing schools, big events, I don't think there should be any um, sporting events or concerts because, you know, there's always the people that are not going to be diligent with their hand hygiene, that are not going to be coughing into their sleeves. They're going to be out there and they're going to spread it. Um, There was also a study, a preliminary study that came out this week that said that it can last in the air for up to three hours and then on surfaces for a couple of days. So I don't necessarily think you should be wearing a mask because we in healthcare need them. But it means, you know, if you're going to be playing outside, you know, quarantine is really hard for kids. Don't go to a playground. Go play soccer where there's plenty of air circulation. Go to places that have really large circulating air. Don't go to the tiny yoga studio where everybody's coughing on each other. You know, go run on an indoor track if there's not a lot of people there and there's a lot of air circulation. It depends on your area. So so that's kind of my general, should we be panicking? Yes, we should be taking this very seriously. No, we shouldn't be panicking and buying all the toilet paper. Um, I, I didn't understand about the toilet paper at first. I was kind of confused about like, what is, how does toilet paper, what does it have to do with that? I, I didn't understand it. And then I realized it's because people are afraid they're going to be quarantined for long t- periods of time. And so they want to stock up on things like that. They don't want to run out of toilet paper. They don't want to run out of, you know, right. that sort of thing. So I guess yeah. it kind of makes sense. It's not necessary, but I, I, at least I understand why they're, they're thinking. And then I think what happens is it starts people, a few people get the idea to stock up on things. Right. And then all of a sudden everyone else panics, not because they think they necessarily need to stock on stock up on toilet paper because of the coronavirus, but they need to stock up on it because it's, it's going to be gone and they're not going to be able to get it just as, you know, in normally. And then it just snowballs into everyone wanting toilet paper. I am, I'm so, I'm in really good shape in this area because I've been using Amazon prime for the past year or so. And I, the subscribe and save where they like deliver it to your, and so I keep forgetting to can't like, I keep forgetting to go in there and like not order the toilet paper. And so we keep getting these huge boxes of toilet paper. And my husband's like, Tina, we're, we're not in danger of like running out of toilet paper. We're in danger of like dying from getting overrun by toilet paper because we crushed by toilet paper <laughs> crushed by toilet paper we have so much toilet paper if you guys need any let me know we can hook Email you Tina, up good nurse bad we can hook you up <laughs> we'll ration it we're gonna ration it out yeah you know I so the boyfriend was in the army I was in the army we never had toilet paper they always ran out and so we we have those MREs our rations they'd give us them all the time and you get these little horrible like one ply napkins that are like folded over especially if you're female and like you're out in the woods and mm-hmm. you use your MRE napkins <laughs> so when this stuff started going down i was like all right honey we're saving all of our MRE napkins now yeah you know how you know how to do that <laughs> yeah experience it's we're just kind of laughing about it cuz you know, Amazon Prime is still going to exist. Just plan ahead a little bit. Yeah. You know, you may get quarantined for two weeks or something, but plan ahead. That's the biggest thing is, you know, yeah. use more reusable stuff. I started getting more beeswax wrap and uh, reusable bags and cloth napkins because one, it's good for the environment. And two, you know, that I'm not worried about supplies. Yeah. So social distancing is so important, but freaking out is not good for your health either. So. Well, I think, I think that, um, for me, I, I've my, um, which I guess everyone, everyone has done this, but I've sort of had a journey through this whole thing where I started out just not understanding it, not having enough information. I haven't, hadn't looked at it. And I, and I was thinking, oh, this is terrible. And then, then I, I started reading about it, trying to understand it and realized or, or read that it's not, oh, the symptoms are mild. It's really, it's not, not that many people die. People are, you should be more concerned about the flu and things like that. And so I was like, well, that's true. People aren't worried about the flu. And people tend to be like, oh, I'm not getting, I can tell you people get admitted to the hospital and I'm doing their admission history. And I'm like, have you had the flu shot this year? And they're like, I don't get the flu shot. I don't get yeah. the flu. And I'm just right. like, so shocked. And then you have this going on. So then I'm start. I'm kind of like, why are we freaking out of this coronavirus? But then I have kind of progressed to 
recently, especially since you kind of were messaging me and sending me information. And I'm like, okay, there's <laughs> definitely, a, there's, of course you are. And I love that. That's what I love about you, Christine. Uh, like everything is so like rational. Everything is, you know, from a, a point of view of like evidence-based and understanding the real facts. So that's why I love that we're doing this because I, I trust your opinion and your, um, the research that you're going to do. So I feel like there's a balance there. We have to be somewhere in the middle of that. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the research I did. Mm-hmm. And again, most people are going to have really mild symptoms, but mild to moderate symptoms and can be well managed at home. And this is really where primary care providers, outpatient prog- providers like myself can make a really big impact because biggest issue we are going to have and the biggest issue that's facing Italy right now is they didn't take any of these precautions Mm. um, like South Korea did is they are running out of ICU beds. They're running out of just hospital beds for people and they're having to make really difficult decisions about who are they using their, uh, you know, ventilators for who's going on ECMO because, you know, people are getting really, really sick and it's, out of control. So social isolation, aggressive management in early stages outpatient may reduce some of the need for, you know, inpatient admission and ICU admission and hopefully reduce the deaths. You know, the people that are going to get the severe illness are going to get the severe illness most likely. But if we can space out when they're getting it, they have a better shot of survival. And so this is about allowing them the best fighting chance by you not going to, you know, bar class, by you washing your hands really diligently, and by you staying home when you have a fever, which a fever is subjective by the CDC guidelines. You can say, you know, I feel like I have a fever, or it can be a true measured fever. And a measured fever would be anything above 100.4, although the CDC is saying above 100. But- is there anything to, Christine, people who say, so I normally run a low temperature, body temperature. My body temperature is like 97.2 all the time. So if I'm running a temperature of 99.5, you might say, oh, that's not a fever. But for me, it's a fever. Is there anything to, does, is that an indicator that you do have infection that your body's trying to fight off? Okay. This is a thing that we encounter all the time, right? And Tina is just laughing her <laughs> little butt off on, <laughs> on her couch on the other side of the screen. Okay. The 98.6 thing is a myth. It was like this really bad erroneous study that was done like uh, over a hundred years ago. You can have a normal baseline of 97.5, just like you can have a normal heart rate of 58 if you exercise a lot and someone else can have a normal heart rate of 88 if they are just them. Um, So we're trying to indicate a fever as above a hundred. Usually it's above 100.4. So we're giving them a little bit of wiggle room here of above a hundred and your feelings of being, having a fever. Are you feeling really flushed? Are you getting sweating? Are you getting chills? If you're like, oh, I'm just warm. Okay. Well, did you take a temperature in your ear and you've been wearing those really good earbuds (laughs) or have you just been running around stocking up on toilet paper and your face is flushed? Mm -hmm. You know, take a second. Mm Mm-hmm. Take a second and be like, does this feel like a fever? Do I have any other symptoms? You know, panicking and flushing your face and you're using one of those scanning thermometers. It it may interact with your results. So if it's 99.5, I would say calm down, take those earbuds out, chill out and recheck it in maybe an hour. Yeah. Maybe take it a couple different ways, you know, make sure if you're taking it orally, you know, you're not. Yeah. You don't have anything interfering with it. Yeah. Right. Now, don't take it 17 times in one night because you're freaking out about it. That's not helpful either. Um, But we we like to see different readings and we like to validate results sometimes. So if you're not sure, calm down, watch some TV and and see if you get something different. Um, I feel like this is a really good opportunity. This whole thing. Isn't, isn't it a, yeah, isn't this a great opportunity to kind of educate people on some things like that? Like, um, taking the opportunity to not just to educate about, uh, the coronavirus, but about body temperatures. And because there are a lot of healthcare professionals that get really frustrated with patients and family members who say my body temperature runs, you know, 97 point, whatever. So if I'm 99 point, you know, if I'm even at a hundred, then that that's that I'm I've got a fever. Healthcare some healthcare professionals, nurses get really frustrated with people who say yeah. that. 
my thing is if you have a patient in the hospital and you're monitoring them and they you've consistently been getting 97.4, 97.5, 97.3, 97.6 and then all of a sudden you go in there and take their temperature and it's 99.8 I mean are you going to freak out and be like no but are you going to maybe look at some of their other vital signs and, th- and say is anything else trending up what's going on what are their white blood cell count are you not going to be thinking this could be something to consider sepsis some infection somewhere it's you can't just discount that and that's i that i feel right. like there's a, a a room there's room for education for healthcare providers as well or for you know nurses especially right so that's a good point i mean if you, going back to heart rate right so if you're usually your resting heart rate is let's say 64 you're an average you work out all the time so it's pretty good at 6 in the 60s and all of a sudden your resting heart rate is in the 80s yeah that's still a normal heart rate and normal to be resting, but for you, that's a little bit high. Okay. Yeah. Maybe we're going to be having a fever. Now, does that mean freak out? Because that's going to raise your, your heart rate too. Yeah. It's a trend. It mm-hmm. means definitely, iso- you know, definitely quarantine yourself. Now's not the time to go out to the grocery store. Now's the time to say, am I having other symptoms that are correlating with this? Am I now really sweaty? Is my stomach upset? Oh, I am coughing. You know, it's, it may be a quantifiable measurement that clues you into more um, other symptoms that seem a little bit more vague that you maybe weren't noticing because you're running around doing the rest of your life. Oh, I am really achy. I thought that was just because I was carrying all this toilet paper into the house. You know, <laughs> that toilet paper, that darn toilet, toilet paper, paper causing all kinds of problems. It's so much, it's, it's all toilet paper. So it's, it may not be a fever. But you can still be sick and not have a fever. Yeah. So just, you know, it's just like when I say, okay, you don't have a bacterial infection and you don't need antibiotics. You can still have a viral infection and still feel like shit. Like You mean people shouldn't ask for antibiotics for the coronavirus? Well, we're going to get to that because we will be giving them antibiotics a lot of the time. So we'll get to there. Okay. We will, we will get there. <laughs> I mean, don't ask for things because let us do our thing. What? Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm being ridiculous. <laughs> no, this is, I, I love the, the devil's advocate nurse here. Okay. So let's get into some symptoms because I'm sure that's what everyone wants to talk about. Right. So I mentioned the GI symptoms, maybe, uh, one of those first things that come up, but let's talk about some of the more common things. Oh, actually I want to talk about some cases first, what our numbers are at now, because we just got commercial testing available from LabCorp and Quest and hospital labs and everything, they're doing their own testing. We're going to see a significant jump in U.S. tests, uh, U.S. cases. Now, does that mean, oh my God, panic, the, the virus has spread so much after Thursday and Friday? No, we're just going to be more accurately recording the cases that already have been existing. So that's really important to note. So don't freak out, but take, you know, take this really seriously. Um, there have been 1,264 U.S. cases confirmed and 36 deaths as of Friday the 13th. I just realized oh, it's Friday the 13th. I know. Okay. Uh, Friday, March 13th. And worldwide, there has been 132,567 cases with 4,947 deaths. So everyone's talking about death rates, and I'm not really going to even talk about the coronavirus death rate as a whole, because it's really hard when there's so many mild symptoms that are not even being, you know, tested um, to know what the actual death rate is. And that with health systems being swamped in certain places, the death rate is so variable and it's mostly because of the resource limiting. So I'm going to give you some examples. So in China, China as of today, has had 80,981 cases with 3,173 deaths. So with a death rate of the confirmed cases, it's 3.9%. Okay, that's pretty high. That's really high. But again, confirmed cases, there's probably a lot more out there that they just don't know about. South Korea, on the other hand, is another one of those big ones. South Korea has had an amazing response to this because they had SARS- a few years ago and they're like, not again, coronavirus. Mm. We are, everybody there is like on the same page. My dad travels to South Korea frequently for work. He like stopped traveling there 
in December. Um, he, his company works a lot with Samsung and they're like, nope, if you are not Korean, you are not coming in the doors. Mm. We are scanning everybody's uh, temperature. So it was really interesting. Like right away, they just went on lockdown. Because they know what can happen. They know what can happen. And the public is all participating. Unlike the U.S. where we're like, ah, we're fine. I don't know what the big deal is. We're even There's even nurses that I see on my Facebook page that are like, yeah, this is bullshit. It's like, come on, guys. You're healthcare professionals. You know better. But mm-hmm. so South Korea has had uh, 7,979 cases with 66 deaths. That is 0.82%. Wow. So that's if this is done right. And they're probably testing everybody. They're testing even the mild cases, and then they're quarantining them. That's why the death rate is so low. Now, Italy has 15,113 cases. They did not shut down their discos, their nightclubs, their their sporting events. Let's go watch football and everything. They've had 1,016 deaths with a death rate of 6.72%. Ouch. Which is, I mean, it's just extraordinary, and it's so heart-wrenching, and it's probably it's going to continue to go up. The South Korea and the Chinese new cases are, they're, they're going down. The case rates are going down. And then there's Iran, uh, which has 10,075 cases, 429 deaths for a death rate of known cases of around 4.2%. So it's between Italy and, and China. Um, Iran is another more authoritative government, (laughs) of course, but they're not, they're, they're closer to China. They're starting to lock things down more, but they're not nearly as bad as Italy. Um, but I'm not saying that we need to have an authoritative government because clearly look at South Korea. I mean, look at what their death rate is, um, but they're just very, very aggressively treating it. Um, okay. So it was declared a pandemic this week. And a pandemic is basically an epidemic that is spread over several countries or continents and is affecting a large percentage of the world population. An epidemic is is a incidence of disease that is much higher in a local area or region. And you know, like the opioid epidemic, we're having deaths from opioids significantly higher, you know, in the United States than we usually would. Now, if everyone around the world was dying from opioid um, deaths, that would be an opioid pandemic. But it's mostly here in the United States, and so we're classifying it as an epidemic. Okay. We're going to talk about clinical presentation, and this is coming from the CDC as well as The Lancet. The Lancet has a great landing page uh, for coronavirus studies, and they are pre-publishing studies that have not been peer-reviewed yet. So, you know, studies have been out. They're pending peer review. They're basically expediting uh, lit- literature for us to look at so that we can kind of get things out fast. And then, you know, pending peer review, they will officially publish them. So, you know, you can see them, but with the note, you know, knowing that, hey, they haven't been exactly peer reviewed. So keep an eye on that. But there's been a lot of really interesting stuff about the clinical presentation, uh, who's ending up with ARDS, who's dying, and you know, how the disease is progressing. So this is where all of this information is coming from. WHO, CDC, The Lancet, and a lot of this stuff is coming from the researchers in China. So, you know, politically, we have a lot of concerns about China and their humanitarian work, and they're basically work camps for um, certain populations. But I am going to tip my hat to the Chinese researchers and the Chinese physicians and nurses. They're producing a lot of research for us. And, you know, as healthcare providers, I I really salute them for everything that they're doing here. So incubation is about four days. Two to seven is typical, but it can be up to 14 days. So that's why we're having this 14-day quarantine. But you sh- if you get exposed to coronavirus, you're probably going to get it around four to five days, but within a week. It's more common to see coronavirus in men. Uh, it's just slightly more. I think it's like 58 to, you know, 42. But I don't know if that's just because men <laughs> don't wash their hands as much. I'm kidding. I don't know. No, that's interesting. I wonder why. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's also in China. I, I also wonder if it's a maybe a, um, if there's cultural things too. Like men are more out in the business world shaking hands. Oh, in those regions, yeah. Um, in Iran, women are in 
hijabs and burqas and they're not touching things as much as men would be. That does make sense. I'd be curious to see what happens in, well, or in in Italy, even what the numbers are. Yeah. So I would, I wonder in Italy where maybe culturally it's not the same, maybe women just wash their hands more. Um, I'm not sure. And maybe women are not touching their face as much if they're not touching their makeup. I don't know. I can't, I did not realize how much I touched my face until all this don't touch your face stuff started. I had no idea. And I I catch myself doing it constantly. Yeah. I mean, I try not to touch my face because like, I don't want to like smudge my mascara or something, which sounds like the most like anti-feminist thing ever. But then I'm like, I I still do it. I'm still touching things. I went to be, this is a tangent. I went to BJ's yesterday to like stock up on food because I don't want to be going out in public and I know I'm going to be really, really busy with work. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I don't have any like chicken and I don't have any food in the house. Um, and people were really nice, but I was like trying to open those like plastic bags to put meat in, but without like licking my finger first and then touching it. Oh yeah. People were very nice and patient and like, yep, go ahead. And I'm just waiting at a safe six distance away, mm-hmm. six feet away. Okay. So Symptoms are fever. Around 77 to 98% of people are going to present with fever. Cough, 46 to 82%. Myalgia, so muscle aches or fatigue, 11 to 52%. Now, these are some big ranges. And these are coming from uh, retrospective studies done by multiple different people. That's why we're getting these ranges. Um, And they're from China and South Korea. And so this is what the CDC has come up with after reviewing multiple studies. So shortness of breath is 3 to 31%, but it's going to worsen around 13 days. So if someone is going to develop sepsis, which is the severe blood infection, or um, ARDS, which is acute respiratory distress syndrome, they're typically going to worsen around 13 days. The early representative in the early stages of the illness, you, some people report sore throat, but it's not as common. In one study, among uh, 1,099 hospitalized COVID-19 patients, fever was present in 44% at hospital admission and developed in 89% during hospitalization. So if you don't necessarily have a fever when you're admitted, people are going; those that are admitted are going to develop one. Uh, less commonly, headaches, increased sputum produ- production, so you can see hemoptysis, coughing up blood. It's not common. Um, and then GI symptoms proceeding. So there's this really cool article of symptoms from the Lancet and progression. And it shows um, symptom progression and symptom development in patients that survived and did not survive. You know, fever and cough are the base first ones that you're going to get. But then around, you know, day six or seven, you're going to start to get some shortness of breath. And then it shows when they get into the ICU and stuff. So who is at risk for uh, severe illness? So anybody overseen over the age of 55, people are saying 60, but it's 55, 60, it's an increased risk. The average mortality um, age is 80 and possibly pregnancy. We're not really sure, but it, it may be a risk factor. And then comorbidities, especially cardiovascular disease and hypertension. So the way COVID-19 enters your body is through, we're going to get into some biochemistry here, through uh, ACE or 2. So it doesn't actually activate this receptor, but it's using this receptor to enter your body, which is in the lungs. So this is very clinical for people. So this is part of the angiotensin, uh, the renin pathway. So this deals with your kid kidneys. This deals with your lungs. So you have ACE, um, angiotensin converting enzyme receptors in your lungs. You have ACE1 and you have ACE2. And so real, real quickly, um, going back to our pathophys days, you have angiotensinogen it's then converted to renin. Angiotensin 1 is converted by ACE1 and ACE2 into two different forms of angiotensin. It's cleaved differently. So basically it's broken up in different ways by these different receptors, or sorry, these different enzymes. And then those two enzymes, I'm sorry, angiotensin 2 and then angiotensin kind of broken up differently, activate different things. So angiotensin, ACE2. (laughs) This is terrible. I'm terrible at talking about this. Okay. So the enzyme ACE2 
it when it's activated, it can it's theorized it will cause vasodilation, so dilating your blood pressure and hypotension. This is basically getting hijacked by the coronavirus. And through a lot of different mechanisms, it's causing, it's releasing all these inflammatory markers. So or inflammatory molecules, so prostaglandins, bradykinins. Um, these are the things you kind of see with like an ACE cough and an angioedema. And so we're seeing a lot of patients with hypertension with coronavirus. And there was an interesting study that showed that um, mice who were infected with SARS and were knocked out for ACE2, so they removed the genes that code for ACE2, uh, basically had very minimal lung inflammation when they were exposed to SARS. So there's definitely a role of this receptor. Because these receptors are getting hijacked and there are excessive amounts of bradykinins in the lungs, you're getting a lot of inflammation of the lungs. You're getting a lot of fluid in there. And there's an idea of management that if we can reduce bradykinins and we can increase the degradation of them, we can then limit the progression of the severe disease to ARDS. Are you following me, Tina? Am I making yes. any sense? Yeah. Is it so? Yeah. It, it's basically it, it, sort of explaining, you know, what's happening is that it's by it attacking our system, it's affecting our blood pressure, it's affecting our respiratory system, causing a lot of these issues and these people that are that already have comorbidities. It's just exacerbating things that they already have going on. Yes. The virus is going into these. Res- is attaching to these enzymes in your lungs and hijacking kind of your immune system. You're getting this abundant immune response, not only to the virus, but you're also through these enzymes triggering, you know, this, um, the renin aldosterone system pathway. And I think I said it was something different before. So don't at me, um, the RAS pathway and that is further perpetuating the severity of the disease. People who have cardiovascular disease and hypertension, they have an issue with this system to begin with. This is why we prescribe ACE inhibitor drugs, um, angiotensin receptor blocking drugs, because they have issues with the pathway. So when they're getting the virus, which is further screwing it up, they're at significant risk for acute respiratory distress syndrome. So do you want to explain ARDS a little bit to people? Well. <clears throat> acute respiratory distress syndrome. I, I don't, I think that the way I feel like that most people that, that listen to the, to, to, I know my podcast are, are healthcare people. And so when I say ARDS, they're going to know what I always assume they kind of know, but then I'll explain a little bit. But um, if I were explaining it to my husband, for instance, for example. Um, yeah, we'll do husband examples. <laughs> yeah. I would just say, you know, that your lungs are so full of fluid that they're, your air cannot go through the the water. You know, there's water blocking the gas exchange. Yeah. And there's so much inflammation and pressure on the alveoli that you're getting more immune responses to it. More inflammatory markers like bradykinins are coming in, further instigating inflammation. And that is damaging the alveoli. Uh, it's hyperinflating, I believe. And then you're, you're damaging. So high flow oxygen, also causes this because it's putting too much pressure on the lungs. You're you're kind of structurally and mechanically damaging yeah, the alveoli the lungs. The compliance where your your lungs are able to to expand um, and contract, and that obviously is necessary to be able to breathe. Yep. Um, the the compliance gets lower and lower, and you're not able to take in oxygen and um, release CO two uh, and you have to be able to, that's obviously breathing. So, you know. Yeah. It's like over kneading bread dough. You're, you know, it's, it's nice and squishy, but then if you beat it too much, then it's really tough. Yeah. And that's basically what happens to your lungs. You're over beating it with all these, with oxygen and therapies and the infection itself. So it's more of a mechanical injury to the lungs as opposed to, you know, the infection. Are um, people at risk who, okay. So if people, if someone who has, a history of reactive airway disease or asthma as a child to where maybe they were in the emergency room a lot, getting breathing treatments, getting albuterol, getting, you know, all those things, which a lot of kids have, but then a l- many kids outgrow that. And so, yeah, they had 
years of having to take steroids, having to, you know, do whatever they had to do to get, get through those, you know, if, if they would get sick um, or even in, with activity. Um, but now they don't really have any issues anymore. Are those people, or is, is there any chance that those people, maybe their lungs are, there's any damage that could have been done from that, from those, those years. The reason I'm asking that is that my son has uh, for years dealt, he had asthma growing mm-hmm. up, but he pretty much has outgrown it. It's not been an issue, but I was kind of worried about it. And his doctor told him that that was not anything he had to worry about, that actually his lungs would be stronger because he went through that as a child. And I, I was looking up everything like crazy, trying to find information on that. And I couldn't find anything that, that, that actually agreed with that. I don't necessarily know that they would be stronger. Uh, you may have some very minimal, like slightly below average, mm-hmm. if not average, you know, at, you know, FEV, you know, pulmonary function, mm-hmm. um, it might be slightly diminished, but I don't think that it would necessarily continue into adulthood, um, but depending on how severe it was, but it wouldn't make them stronger. I, yeah, I didn't really understand. I've never heard that, uh, that, and I couldn't find any information on it when I start, when I tried to look, look it up. So, and I figure a lot of people probably are going to be wondering at least if they, if their child does have asthma. So, you know, if you've got, if your child has asthma, and, yeah, and they so get I, coronavirus, you know? Well, so the good thing about one of the good news is about one of the good news is, hi, I do science, not English. <laughs> <laughs> one of the good things about this is kids seem to be doing really, really well with this. So if they well, do have asthma, news. of course, we want to make sure we're managing their asthma. But I suspect it may be because children's immune systems are really robust and they can probably be clearing out these immune factors and these things that are causing inflammation really well. So all of that is to be said, you know, I kind of went on this rambling, you know, crazy person. The nursing Uh, students are going to love you. They're going to be like writing all this stuff down really fast. Oh, I don't think I made any sense about that at all. (laughs) Um, Go look at the RASP pathway. It enters through ACE2 and basically causes this like cascade of events where you have elevations and bradykinins and and stuff like that, among other things. There's other, th- but that's one of the big things because now we're going to talk about management. So kids are usually pretty well off. So that's really good. But most people are not going to require hospitalization and they're going to recover with supportive care only. But this, this illness is going to last for probably two or three weeks, especially for the more severe cases. And the severe viral pneumonia, the shortness of breath, it's going to develop in the second week of symptoms. People are generally generally going to worsen on days eight to nine. So with the flu, it lasts, you know, three to four days, maybe five, the worst symptoms, but then you start to get better. Not with the coronavirus. You feel crummy, it's going to get worse around that second week. And that's what your greatest risk. So for outpatient providers, we want to really be checking in on people around day seven and closely follow them seven, eight, nine. You know, if, you, if you're making it through day 10 and you're like, yeah, I still feel okay. I'm getting a little bit better. Great. You may feel worse, but as long as you're not feeling really terrible. So pregnancy, you're not really doing anything special for management during pregnancy other than, you know, lim- you're limited by the medications that you can only give during pregnancy. OBGYNs may have a different guideline for that, so I don't know. Um, Corticosteroids should not be given unless you have severe COPD, severe asthma, or sepsis, because there's a belief that the steroids prolong viral replication. This was seen in MERS, and so we want to avoid giving steroids and prolonging the replication. Systemic steroids are at the greatest risk. And inhaled steroids are restless, ret, inhaled steroids are less risky and they're a better option, but they can still have systemic effects, but not as bad as PO. Um, and because we're concerned about ARDS, so the acute respiratory distress syndrome, conservative oxygen therapy is best. We have a target SpO2 of around 90% in non-pregnant adults and 92 to 95 in pregnant patients. We want to avoid that oxygen toxicity. We want to conserve our IV fluids and have conservative fluid management. Limit IV fluids as much as possible because of pulmonary edema that it will exacerbate existing infiltrates and respiratory distress. This is all from 
the WHO and CDC, specifically WHO for this stuff. And then empiric antimicrobials. So, you know, we're going to be a little bit freer with giving out some Z-packs on this one because Z-pack is how we do treat a pneumonia, right? So we need to look at what diseases are actually prevalent in our environment. So there's still flu around. Those tests are taking three to four days to come back from LabCorp. Yeah, I should be treating you from the flu for the flu if I think it may be flu. I should be treating you for a bacterial pneumonia if I think it may be a bacterial pneumonia. Um, you know, we want to kind of be treating. We don't want someone to wait with a bacterial pneumonia for four days mm, waiting okay. on a swab result. So it's not that you're treating the coronavirus with it; it's that you're treating what else it could be, right? Because you don't want to just assume the treatment for coronavirus is not a ZPAC. I'm empirically treating the symptoms, which could be a bacterial pneumonia because that is very common in that patient and in this area. Okay. So I would initiate therapy with the appropriate antimicrobial, be it an antibiotic for bacterial pneumonia, be it Tamiflu for influenza, if that is deemed appropriate in that area. Okay. The World Health Organization does recommend that. They say don't hold off on those medications because you think this is coronavirus because those other things are still out there and you can always stop them. There are some medications that are shown to have some benefit in coronavirus specifically. Now, these are not FDA approved for coronavirus. So this is where our big asterisk is about, you know, don't just start doing this. Um, But these are some of these studies that I was kind of ranting and raving about earlier. We are talking about bradykinin mediated inflammation from that ACE2 receptor. And this is why I was kind of going on that rant. We have some pretty common drugs that moderate this. So NSAIDs, ibuprofen, Aleve, indomethacin, aspirin, they regulate bradykinin inflammation and prostaglandins. So if you have a fever and you have some aches and pains, it may be a better idea for outpatient providers to be recommending NSAIDs over Tylenol because Tylenol is not going to have that bradykinin and prostaglandin activity like ibuprofen would. And so, you know, that's something to consider. Indomethacin, which is another NSAID, we commonly give it for gout, at doses of one milligram per kilogram daily total, uh, actually has potent antiviral efficacy against SARS. So coronavirus is SARS-CoV-2, original SARS, this Indomethacin is shown to be very effective in antiviral against SARS. So that's really interesting. So if this is true and we're anti- we are outpatient providers and we're saying, hey, I want to manage the body aches and the fever and I'm going to be giving an NSAID anyways, maybe I should be choosing indomethacin to do that. Yes, there are higher GI side effects. It's not appropriate for everyone. But if I can reduce all this inflammation, reduce the damage in the lungs, maybe these people aren't going to be going to be need to be admitted and need to be going to the ICU. So that's actually what we're going to be doing at work now is we're going to be, uh, my physician partner and I are going to be doing indomethacin with ribavirin and aggressive management of hypertension. But that's just the protocols that we've developed after doing our research. But always do your research um, in your own places if you're a provider and, and tell patients, you know, this is not FDA approved, but this is what our studies have shown. And so we can give you the choice of participating or not in this. Um, so ribavirin, this is an antiviral. It works really well with indomethacin for SARS by um, impacting viral RNA synthesis and gene expression. And there's been a couple of studies on ribavirin to support it limiting viral growth. Uh, chloroquinone, this is used for malaria, right? In It's the... God, in tonic water, what is our, I was just thinking about this. What is that medication that's in tonic water? Uh, quinine, right? Hmm. This is the drug of it. So that actually uh, helps with viral entry infusion as well as viral replication. Now, I'm not saying go start drinking gin and tonics to avoid the coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> I think you need like, I forget what it was. Someone was saying that you need so many gin and, you know, tonic waters to uh, equivocate where you need to treat malaria. But uh, chloroquine helps uh, with SARS. And this is all based on SARS. So this is not on COVID. This is SARS, the sister virus, sister strain. 
So just trying to understand that because we don't know enough about the COVID-19, maybe understanding the the sister right. virus can help yeah. us. So it, so SARS is still a coronavirus. SARS is just like one branch on the coronavirus phylogenic tree. Did you say it was COVID-2? It's, so SARS-CoV-2 is the COVID-19. Which one is SARS? So SARS-CoV-1, I think, is, is initial SARS. So this oh. is a SARS virus. Oh, okay. This is SARS-2. Okay. We call it COVID. Because so coronavirus disease, and usually in 19 is the, the year that it was discovered. Yes, but it's so a sister. It's very similar to SARS. And so if you look at the phylogenetic tree, so the, the DNA sequencing of relationship, mm-hmm. what we know as the new coronavirus is an iteration of SARS. Okay. It's just slightly different. Um, it's very different than MERS, which is the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. MERS is much more lethal, but it's, it's still a, MERS is still a coronavirus. So if that's further away, though. There's all these charts you can look at. Go look up uh, phylogeny of coronavirus if you really want to, uh, all you fellow nerds. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty cool. There's a lot of them. You know, we get coronaviruses all the time. Yeah. There's normal human strains. Like I had someone with a coronavirus like in January and she, uh, this patient had like NL63, which is a really common strain. It can still make you really sick, but we have like three regular human coronavirus strains that are constantly circulating, just like rhinovirus, just like, you know, adenovirus. Mm-hmm. They're, they're out there and we get the common cold with them. Um, but this is obviously the more severe one. All right. So there's also protease inhibitors. So what are protease inhibitors? These are the medications that we are currently using for HIV and they're very expensive. And this one has actually been studied in coronavirus. So in one of the, the coronavirus, the COVID-19 in China, they were using, um, Calitra, uh, which is, excuse my pronunciation, lopinavir and ritonavir and viracept. So Calintra, which is the combo drug, actually reduced the days of viral shedding from something like two to 37 days to 24 days. So it it significantly reduced it after the initiation of the protease inhibitors, but they're very expensive. So they're not as applicable. Um, it's going to be hard to get those. But ribavirin and indomethacin are fairly cheap. So those are things that we should be considering. All right. You know, we're at an hour. I don't want to ramble on too long about this. Um, people have other things to do in their quarantined lives. Um, we're toilet paper to buy. So is there anything else you think we should touch on before we wrap up, Tina? Um, <clears throat> I I wanted to try to touch on the idea of flattening the curve and the importance of the sort of the balance of, uh, for people uh, to understand for those people who are kind of the naysayers that are, you know, I saw someone post on do- on um, Facebook this morning, like, um, I'm going to Dollywood, I'm riding the roller coasters, you know, like, mm. they are sort of taking it like, oh, hey, while you guys are being dumb and act and panicking, I'm going to go enjoy the world being you know, having less people, um, right. making fun of Disney for closing, making fun of the NBA for uh, canceling ball games and that sort of thing. And I feel like there's definitely that is an overreaction as much as the overreaction of buying tons of toilet paper. Yeah. Yeah. Flattening the curve is delaying the spread so that hospitals and outpatient primary care providers, everybody can keep up. Yeah. With- and, and it's like what we talked about with Italy. You know, we want to be able to provide the best, highest level care possible mm-hmm. to people. We want to give them the fighting chance. But if we are stretched so thin that we don't have enough ventilators, we don't have enough masks, we don't have enough IV fluids, we and we don't have time to resupply, you know, it's a war of attrition at that point. We're just going to, we're going to lose because we just don't have, it's just coming at us. And we are further increasing our risk of exposure and we're going to have healthcare providers going down. So we need to slow, slow the spread and slowing. It means people are going to get better care. They're going to get more access to care and we're going to be able to, to give them everything they deserve. And so we're going to have better survival rates. So 
that's what flattening the curve means. So stay out of Dollywood. Leave Dolly Parton alone. She's a wonderful lady. She does not need the coronavirus. (laughs) (laughs) No. And the thing is, if you don't do, if you do not take the protective measures of just doing the thing, not being ridiculous, but just following the World Health Organization's recommendations. Yeah. That's not being unreasonable. Following those recommendations, that's not being unreasonable. Don't be going into large gatherings. Do wash your hands. Try not to touch your face if you can. You know, don't panic and don't buy overbuy things. But maybe, yeah, maybe stock up on it for a few, get a maybe six days or a week supply of stuff so that if you start seeing symptoms, you can stay home and not spread it. And that way, I'm I'm off work just spring break next week. I took some PTO. I was I'm off for like a week, and so I told my husband just now. I was like, I my son came home because his work sent him home because he has the sniffles. He's kind of, he's got a sinus infection. He doesn't have a fever. He doesn't. Have, he's not achy. He does not have any symptoms. He's just got a kind of like a cold, maybe allergies that's kind of turned into a sinus infection. And mm-hmm. because he sounds like that, they would not let him work. Honestly, I think that's a good idea. I think if we are very aggressive with our restrictions for a few weeks, we're going to contain this. We need to be very aggressive for a few weeks, contain it, you know, treat the cases that we have and then be done with it. But if we are having people slip through the cracks and going Mm -hmm. out and re-exposing people, this is going to drag on for a lot longer and it's going to have a bigger impact. So it's really inconvenient. It's really terrible, but it's hard for people because my son is 21 years old and living at home and he's fine financially. We can take care of him. But for, I feel really bad for people who, like, if they were going, if that, if that was someone who's trying to provide for a family, single mom, single dad, right. or just even uh, whoever it, that's barely kind of making their bills and then they get sent home for how many days on, you know, because they got a cold. I don't know. It's kind of scary to me. Um, I worry a little bit about, about those people. It is too, but then at the same time, if they maybe are getting a really mild presentation of the coronavirus that just looks like a cold, mm-hmm. if they then go to work and they expose all their coworkers who are in yeah. the same boat, yeah. well, you know, everyone else is in the same position. No, I get it. I, I yeah, agree since, 100%. And he's in retail, so he's dealing with the public constantly. So I right? definitely so get it's it. It's a rock and sure. a hard place. And yeah, I I believe in Medicare for all because I think, especially in places like this, you know, we should not be worried about having to pay for treatment for this. And, you know, when you have the buying power of the masses, Mm -hmm. you know, you can negotiate better drug prices and you can focus on preventative medicine and and treat things before they get out of control. But I think there's a lot of people that are going to not be going to the hospital because they can't afford it. And then they're going to be spreading it because they have to. And in a country like ours, that's shameful. Oh, I, I agree with you so much, Christine. It's, it's, a, it's, it's devastating and we need to do something about it. And I think our government needs to put something in place for protecting, you know, temporary and hourly workers for their wages and enacting some emergency laws about healthcare because we need to make sure people get covered and they get treated because it's their lives. So, well, I agree. It's a shame, uh, it's, but <laughs> Yeah. All right. If you have questions for me, I will try and answer them. Um, And, you know, everybody stay safe out there. Wash your hands. Use your hand sanitizer. You know, don't touch your face. Keep six feet apart from people. Don't go to big gatherings. You know, play it safe. Be really strict for a few weeks. Let's get through this. Let's look out for each other, though. Be kind when things are taking longer. Yes. You know, be kind to people. Reach out to people that are isolated. This is really tough for kids. This is really tough for the elderly. You know, be nice on social media because that's the really the only human connection a lot of people are having when they're quarantined. Don't be a naysayer. Take it seriously. But, you know, show some good. Show, Show the kindness and the compassion that we all know that we have inside of us. But show it for everybody because this is the time where we can have that go viral. Right? Yeah, and help educate people rather than being kind of snarky and making fun of people because they believe differently or maybe they're misinformed. If, if that's not going to get anywhere, if you, you know, right. just very nicely, kindly help to educate and tell what you know, showing some evidence based uh, information, maybe a website, you know, showing the World Health Organization information. Give give good 
information for people so that they might change their mind, not so that you can insult them and make them feel bad. Right. I mean, you don't need to be printing out studies and slamming it in their face because one, that's not social distancing. (laughs) True. (laughs) That's probably rude. (laughs) You know, uh, yeah, I mean, you also don't need to obsess about this. Uh, my boyfriend was like, oh, I heard this great podcast on the coronavirus today. And I was like, I have probably read 100 studies in the last 72 hours about SARS and the coronavirus. I'm going to go listen to some true crime podcasts <sighs> and because I need to take a break. Like, I need to take a break from this and I'm going to go walk my dog and I'm going to go work out at home. But <laughs> step back from this, too. Look out for yourself and enjoy cooking at home. (laughs) Look up some fun recipes. Yes, definitely. Enjoy the quarantine time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is great Netflix era. So, hey, buy stock in Netflix and Hulu. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, reach out to me if you guys have any thoughts. Let me know what you're doing, especially if you're in other parts of the world. I'm so fascinated by international medicine, but also international responses to a pandemic. Reach out on Facebook, Antidotes Stories in Medicine. Uh, Email is antidotespodcast at gmail.com. Instagram is antidotes podcast. And uh, yeah, let me know what you think. And I hope you guys all stay, stay, stay safe and healthy and please share the podcast. And Tina, what's uh, Good Nurse, Bad Nurse? You can find us at goodnursebadnurse.com. You can find us on Instagram at goodnursebadnursepodcast or on Facebook at GNBN Podcast. Yay. And I'm sorry for all the mistakes. I'm just going to submit this. So there it is. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you, Tina. Thanks.